Welcome to our Perimenopause What the F podcast, brought to you by the Perry community. In this podcast, your host, Rachel Hughes, talks everything, and we mean everything, perimenopause. She helps us navigate through all our What the F perimenopause moments and all, is this normal? Questions. Rachel talks with perimenopause experts, thought leaders, and inspirational voices of the community. To connect with other perimenopause warriors, download our free Perry app. You can find the link in our show notes. And now, let's dive right in. Hey everyone, this is Rachel Hughes of Rachel Hughes Midlife Wellness here with another episode of Perry Talks, where we like to deep dive into all things perimenopause and menopause, bringing you the science and the sisterhood. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Camelia Smith. She's an OBGYN in Dallas. We're talking about the four stages of menopause. I have many questions for her, specifically on the topic of MHT versus HRT, what we should be saying, what we should be asking for and why, antidepressants, medical gaslighting. And I'm really curious, at the tail end of World Menopause Awareness Month, her thoughts on all that we're talking about. What's really helpful to women? What's not helpful to women? Where does she land on the whole conversation, the wave around perimenopause and menopause? For future episodes, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Feel free to leave us a review. And now let's get started. Thank you so much and welcome, Dr. Camelia. Am I saying that correctly, Camelia Smith? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to introduce you. Dr. Yes. Smith is the Associate Medical Director of Ms. Medicine, a national network of female founded concierge doctors. You were voted the best gynecologist in Dallas. That's very exciting. Congratulations. And you are the founder and director of Charleston House Gynecology. Dr. Smith is a certified menopausal practitioner through the North American Menopause Society and a clinical assistant professor. She's completed an executive healthcare leadership fellowship and pursued additional training in obesity, weight management, and aesthetics to address the many needs of today's woman. I Absolutely love that and would love it if you would, Dr. Smith, um, start by talking to us about your practice, concierge medicine. I think this is like, I always call it, oh, can someone just mute their um, audio if you would? Thanks. Um, I always call it boutique medicine. I don't know if that's one in the same, but I absolutely love the idea of it. And I'm curious how you kind of found yourself approaching women's health care from, from that place and, and Charleston House. I'd love to hear about it. No, I would love to talk about that. And I, again, Rachel, thank you for having me. And I applaud what you and your team are doing at Perry. Um, when I left my obstetrical practice about three years ago, I did so largely because I was a 44-year-old woman. And I thought, okay, I don't have the skill set or knowledge to care for myself 
And I thought, who are going to care for all these women in my practice? And at that time, there was really no one that I could find in Dallas dedicated to menopausal medicine. And I didn't even think I needed menopausal medicine, so to speak. And so, um, but I think you guys at Perry are really ahead of your time in acknowledging that we women across the span of our lives, we really need this to be an area of focus. And so um, I often tell my patients that my Instagram feed looks very different than theirs. Um, I can see all the things, the recent surge and uptake of information on menopause and the care for menopausal women. And so I think it's an exciting time to be a woman and you guys at Perry are playing a huge role in that. Um, so I predict that the OB-GYN practice or specialty will someday divide. And I think there'll be a home for women who are having babies and the rest of us that are outside the childbearing years. And that can be young before you have babies or choose not to have children or you have completed childbearing. But I think that these are two different specialties and none of us are really being adequately trained. Um, internal medicine doctors, there are some very special unicorns out there in the world that have made this a um, passion of theirs and a focus of their practice. But as an OB-GYN, you know, we are the front line for a woman. Um, we've develop that very intimate, close relationship with a woman. Um, oftentimes as she's going through infertility or pregnancy loss or having had a child. And so we really need to be the ones I think that are educated to do this. And so Charleston House was really created for that reason, to be a healthcare home for women, a like, sort of a landing place. And if you think that you can't care for a woman, like I always tell young doctors, if you think you can care for a woman and not ask her about what all she deals in her day-to-day -day from the day moment her feet hit the floor. What are the stressors in her life? I'm like, are you caring for an aging parent? Do you have a child with special needs? If you think that you can adequately care for a woman and really know how to make a partnered planned decision-making thing about something big like hormones without knowing all that, then you're kidding yourself. And so that is why these models need to exist. Now, concierge medicine, I hate using that term. It sounds so unattainable. Um, I tell patients, we are a latte a day. Like what you spend on your Starbucks coffee, that's what you could be spending on having a very um, personal relationship with the practitioner. And it's not just me at Charleston House. My staff is above and beyond. And they really, half the time, I don't even think that they need me anymore. They just know how to really care for a woman and meet her where she is. And so those types of medical practices, I think you're going to see them really start to develop quite quickly. We pay a membership for a gym. We pay a membership for our hair, um, all the things, right? And so it really is just about what do you place value on? And some of us don't know that we need that until we need it. We're a very reactive society. And so I always tell patients like Charleston House exists for two reasons. We're a very reactive society. We call the doctor when we're sick, but we have this whole proactive arm where I'm the one that's really thinking what is going to be the thing that's your biggest risk factor for taking your life, right? And it's different for every woman, whether it's bone health, breast health, what their genetics are, cognitive decline. And so my job is to create this very proactive pathway for them that where I'm looking at the things and how to minimize their risk for certain disease processes. And that this is like... You know, I hate that this can't be everyday medicine, but it's not the it's not the healthcare system with which we are all existing in. And so that's really how Charleston House was created. It's not intended for the haves and leaving out the have nots, but it is about what do you place value on? And our patients really value on their health. And so we invest in that. Um, thank you for that, Dr. Smith. I Oh, sorry. So sorry. Um, I just want to ask anyone on the call to just check your um, mute button, if you wouldn't mind just hitting that one more time. Thank you. Um, 
I, I so appreciate everything you said about the haves and the have nots. I think that's critical. I do think I agree with you that my observation as a lay person is that healthcare, you know, certainly putting aside the divisiveness of it and that whole issue about the haves and the have nots and who have acts, who has access to, to um, just sort of pristine care. I do think that particularly OBGYN is going to kind of maybe part ways or maybe should, I don't know. Um, so a couple of things you said, just I wonder if you would go a little deeper on that. Um, one is uh, what do you place value on? And really a little more on what was happening with you that kind of helped to instruct decisions you made in your personal and professional life. Um, and also I'm wondering in your observations, possibly prior to opening Charleston House, but certainly now being in it, um, what care is needed? What care is needed for perimenopausal, menopausal women? Where is the lack? And if you could sort of get a little bit more into that, sorry, I just threw a lot of questions back. <laughs> I can start, I can backpedal. So let's start with you. I'm really curious about your experience. You said you were 44 and things were happening and you were kind of like, there's not enough conversation going on about this. Now you're a physician. So you were perhaps able to, you know, you have obviously a clearer lens into a lot, but what was happening sort of in your, as a patient? in, I assume, perimenopause? I would say for me, I was really, um, it wasn't so much what was happening physically. It was the awakening to things were going to come and were going to change. And I okay. thought, I, I don't know who's going to take care of me. My patients have really given me the gift of pushing me to be the practitioner I am. And I always say we, when I talk about Charleston House, because it is the women of Charleston House. And when you're caring for patients, it's really about the cohort of women that you care for. And so when I say that Charleston House is, you know, we, we do things that traditional medicine isn't, you know, should be evidence-based, should be a part of a traditional care plan, like calculating a tire cues score for a woman so she knows her lifetime risk of breast cancer. Those things aren't being done. And so the cohort of women in front of me really drives what I need to know and my knowledge. They're like, where are you just learning all this? Are you making up? And I'm like, you're driving me to be a lifelong learner and a better practitioner. And so back in three, four years ago, when I was in a very busy OB-GYN practice, I would be running back and forth between labor and delivery. And I would see women literally in the stirrups. And I would think, please don't tell me that your marriage is not going well. Because we can't even possibly talk about that right now. And I'm going to leave you in the throes of just vulnerability. And I got to go to her baby. And that was really bothersome for me. And at the end of the day, I would go home and think, well, who did I really help today? And there, there are women who waited a whole year to see me. They probably waited an hour plus for me to say, you're good. Everything looks fine. You don't have cancer. I'll see you in a year. Yeah. And I thought, that cannot be the best that we have for women mm -hmm. that possibly cannot be the best care that women deserve. And being one myself, I thought, nope, that's not good enough. Um, and so that's really, I think how it came about. And I did a focus group of my patients and I said, Hey, I want you individuals to tell me what you would, what you need more of from me. And it wasn't real pretty to read at the beginning. I'll tell mm. you, it was very humbling because I had become a practitioner was very desensitized to the needs of the consumer. And so I'm very big on 
on medicine is sort of the one area of business where we're not really worried about the experience of the consumer and it's not sure. consumer focused. It's like, it's a gift for you to have my time. And I think that is really flawed thinking because if you want to get a woman to really care for herself and trust you, she has to build that relationship with you. And it can't be, you're doing her a service by speaking to her. She's really not going to trust you in the, the, the options that you lay out in front of her for treatment, unless she feels like you value you, her as much as she values you. Um, and that was a really big focus for me at Charleston House too, is like consumers deserve to be, their time is important, especially a woman's time. Like we don't have enough hours in the day, right? right. Um, and so I think that we need to be focused on patients, women, th- what their experience is like in the healthcare system, because not, not because it makes me, oh, good, me, best doctor in Dallas it actually increases the experience of the patient and what she will be able to do for herself yes, to yes, longer, yes. healthier life. And there is a big connection between those two that I think we miss as physicians. And it's really, frankly, it's not taught to us. And it's sort of almost no. beat out of us in medicine to say, I am the doctor. This is what I say. And if you don't want to do it, then you must not want help. Yeah. And that unfortunately is where we are. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And I have a couple questions sort of related that we'll get to later, but to begin. So the title of this chat is the four stages of menopause. And I have to admit, I read the title because I didn't come up with it. And I thought, "Mm, did I, (laughs) in all this time that I've been speaking to specialists and people in this niche, have I missed a stage? Because I knew of perimenopause, essentially perimenopause and postmenopause, and that those were the stages. So that's how I was thinking of them. So would you tell us what they are and what I have missed? Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Okay. Thank you. So for the, you know, the purest academic minded, there are four stages of menopause. There's pre, there's peri, there's menopause, and then there's post. And patients really want to know, like the two big things when they come into my office is, is something wrong with my hormones? I know something's wrong. I don't feel right. And the second thing is always, I want to know where I am. Well, myself, yeah. I'm sure you do too, Rachel, myself included, I would love to know where I am in the menopause sure. condition. And I don't, and I want to give, um, I want to encourage women in the fact that you don't need to know where you are to be able to treat some yeah. of your symptoms. So just put your mind aside. Now, as a practitioner, it is very important that I understand when you had your last period, because that does start a clock on some processes. Your lipids change after menopause, the quality of your lipid particles change, so cardiovascular risk stratification um, cancer risk, you know, just, there are a lot of things that change after menopause. So it is important for us to be able to identify when that is, but post-menopause, like literally menopause is defined as the minute when you haven't had a period for 12 months. So I don't know if every time we have a period, we should just put a, you know, an alarm on our phone for 12, 12 months from now and wait Mm -hmm. and see if we make it. Mm -hmm. Um, or if it's, it's just something that's in hindsight, right? So, so menopause is sort of a hindsight kind of thing. And then when we've been like, aha, I haven't had a period for 12 months. Well, now I must be postmenopausal, but I'm not going to treat a menopausal woman any different than I'm going to treat a postmenopausal up to some degree. Mm -hmm. You know, if she's 15 years postmenopausal, that's very different. Um, but when you talk about Pre, well, pre is kind of anything that really is before peri and pre is, you know, that there's a blurred line between pre and peri. And I'm sure I'm sitting in peri and minnow somewhere right. at 47, but right. for pre, 
you know, I like to believe that things aren't really changing beneath the surface, but I do think that, you know, the ovaries are still very much doing their job, um, responding to the signals from the brain and cycles are typically well, I hate, I'd never hate to use the word normal, mm-hmm. but cycles are typically for a woman that has cycled every 28 to 30 days or cycles will remain like that. But I do think this is a time where lifestyle can really impact the timing of menopause. And I mean, all the external mm-hmm. environmental things like stress, stress is a big thing yeah. um, that can impact and shut down the brain and the brain no longer wants to send signals to the ovaries diet. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're actually too thin, then you're going to make very low estrogen. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, estrogen, you get a lot of peripheral conversion of other precursors um, into estrogen in your adipose tissue. So I tell people more real estate. If you have more real estate, you got more room for conversion. You've got more estrogen, but in the opposite of those, if you're very thin, you'll have low estrogen. And so now you're in a pre-menopausal state by design, you have low estrogen, but it's really hard for you to, um, in that perimenopausal, to sort of regulate that out. And so you already start behind the curve in that regards as well. And so, you know, having polycystic ovarian syndrome, there's a lot of things that can affect the perimenopausal transition when you're just premenopause. Now, peri, so we've talked about pre, we've talked about menopause, and we've talked about post, but it's pre, it's peri, then it's meno and then it's post. So right. perimenopause. Okay. So this is my favorite time to take care of a woman. Maybe she's 45, 46, maybe she's 47. I don't know. It doesn't matter, right? Doesn't have to be exact. But this is the stage in my mind that really does not get enough credit. Um, this is the stage when things really start to change. And it first enters a woman's mind, hey, I might be near menopause or something's wrong with my hormones, or I just don't feel right. And the hallmark of perimenopausal, it just like a true definition is the hallmark is usually the onset of erratic bleeding or erratic, um, abnormal cycles. Now, this doesn't mean you can't be perimenopausal and and have normal cycles. You can, it's just typically the first thing that I see, or the first thing I ask is about a woman's bleeding. And I think menstrual cycles are an outward manifestation of what's going on internally in a woman's body. And so I think this is why it can be so confusing for, for women, because some women have normal cycles, normal, every predictable cycles, and they are having hot flashes, right? But we're not a textbook. So I want you to think about perimenopause as a time where you exit your reproductive years as you enter them, right? So think about when you were going through puberty or you have a teenage daughter like I have at home that's 13. I mean, I, you know, like, I don't know what kind of mood she's going to be in when she wakes up. She's a sweet girl, but, you know, sometimes things are (laughs) lurking beneath the surface and, You know, I think in when you're when you're exiting your reproductive years, your PMS symptoms start really ramping back up. You see the acne on your chin, you have breast tenderness, you're up four pounds on the scale the next morning with water retention and bloating. You have mood swings, fatigue around the time of your cycle, and you don't know when your cycle's coming and you may right. skip a couple months. And so I think that we have to really um just take heart to women during that time and go, Hey, this is when she really needs us to sweep in and kind of help her because it's very straightforward what to do when you're menopause in my mind and your post, but what do you do in the period? Do you put a woman on a birth control pill? Do you put them on contraception? Are they going to ovulate? Can they still get pregnant? They really need hormone relief. You know, hormone therapy, Rachel is not the same dose as birth control pills right? So hormone therapy is much lower than a birth control pill. And so I see these women 49 walk in my office on a birth control pill. And I'm like, Hmm. So, so, 
So Dr. Smith, I want to pause you just for one second, because I, I do want to go deeper on MHT, HRT, birth control, and so on. But I just want to go back to a couple of things you said. And by the way, now that you've said it, I absolutely knew there were four stages. I think I just think of it in terms of like, you know, before that day and all that's going on. And then after that one day at 12 months. So just to back up a second, you, you talked about uh, premenopause and perimenopause. And then you started to talk about diet and stress. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just spend a little more time talking first about stress and then about nutrition. I was actually speaking to a group of friends not too long ago, and we were talking, uh, about, you know, weight and body size and, and, you know, all of, all of what's out there and what we see and, and the messaging and the reality, but I think it's so many people, so many women still get stuck about that. And I wonder if you could just sort of spin again, what you had talked about estrogen and, and being too thin and that court sort of thing. But if you would start with stress. So let's talk about what happens when the body's in a stress response or a fight or flight, right? So yeah. a stress response is you're running through the woods and you see a bear. Okay. Well, that's, a, that's an actual stress response. And so people think of stress as that, but what is worse than just that acute stressor is chronic stress in your life where you're operating up here, which is how I was when I was seeing 35 patients a day. I was the catecholamines, the epinephrine, the norepinephrine, I'm just burning and churning it out. And cortisol, right? So cortisol is meant to be our friend. It's to protect us in times of stress. But, you know, you can burn a bridge with your cortisol friend in your body and, and just keep tapping that and tapping it and tapping it. And, and so I think that chronic stress, chronic high cortisol, chronic whatever you want to call it, can create an inflammatory process in the body. And I think that inflammation is at the root of all evil for all of us. And nutrition plays into, yes. nutrition plays into that. You know, I like to live somewhere gracefully. I like to say I like to gracefully between Western medicine and Eastern medicine. I can't go too far one way or the other because I have to live in the middle and understand that we don't know at all in Western mm -hmm. medicine. Mm -hmm. We are wrong if we think that, I think Eastern medicine had it figured out a lot longer before us. So just want to lay that out real quick so they know who I am and where I'm coming from. Um, but stress is a big thing. And so inflammation sets up. Well, I can see women who have low BMIs, have chronically under-consumed their calories and a nutritional deficit for a long time. That's a form of stress on the body, right? Yeah. Um, and when they do that, when I check their hormones, the, the estrogen's low, but it's low because everything in the brain is shut off. Mm. So think of a professional athlete um, who is trained and is like very lean muscle mass, and they may not be able to keep up with their caloric intake because there's such a large expenditure from over-exercising. They also don't have the signals from their brain. So let's back it up a step further. The brain produces hormones. So when somebody says, I want to check my hormones, I'm like, are we talking cortisol? <laughs> yeah, which one? FSH, LA, what, what, what are we talking about? And so the brain is sending signals to the ovary and the ovary's job is to respond to those signals from the brain. But if the brain has been shut down from chronic stress, 
then it will not send a signal to the ovaries. So are we talking about a downstream problem with the ovaries? Or are we talking about an upstream? Mm -hmm. But I want you to think about menopause differently. Menopause is the ovaries are like, oh man, you know, like we started in utero and we only got so many follicles and we got so many receptors on us and we've already done this, been there, done that. <laughs> so we can't really respond to the signals of the brain anymore, right? So we right. just aren't producing any estrogen. When estrogen is produced by the ovaries, there's a biofeedback to the brain telling the brain, hey, I'm a negative Nelly. You need to slow it down a little bit. I don't need you to be tapping on my receptors on the ovary as much anymore. I've got enough estrogen coming out. So it's a negative feedback, right? Which mm -hmm. is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But when you aren't producing enough estrogen, that estrogen's not feeding back to the brain. So what does the brain do? It just cranks up even more hormones. Mm. I don't know why the ovaries aren't responding. Right. Let so, me be louder. Yes. I'm going to be obnoxious. So I'll see high FSH levels and from the brain, but I'll see low estrogen. That's very different than a chronic stress. That's low FSH, low LH, all the brain signals are low and estrogen is low. So you really have to take time going, is it an upstream or downstream problem? Upstream being the brain, downstream being the ovaries. At the end of the day, the estrogen's low regardless how you get there. And then you have that final common pathway and symptoms based on low estrogen, no cycles, um, vaginal dryness. I mean, I have young girls who have vaginal dryness because they haven't made estrogen for a long time. Um, but I do hope that that gives you a little bit of idea of what stress can do to us. And we would love to manage our stress, but let me just tell you why we are on the topic of, of stress and, um, that lifestyle, um, is very important, right? We say that, but what does that really mean? Well, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, has always been to show the most beneficial thing for a woman. And while that's encouraging, it's also like banging your head against the wall. Cause you're like, who's got time to go to therapy once sure. a week or money you know? or access. Or money. That like, looks that's, like, a, yeah. that's a luxury on so many levels yeah. for so many resources for a woman. And I am yeah. very sensitive to that, but you know, if we can find the right people and that would be my next charge for you is like, Hey, can we find some some therapists that really understand how to take care of a menopausal woman to manage expectations that when she wakes up at 4 a.m., her brain's not going off crazy about yeah. all the, she's a failure. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess that's what happens to me. I'm like, yeah, I no, no. <laughs> right? we would all, we've all, yeah, we've all, we've all, looked so, but yeah. yes, but cognitive behavioral therapy, that therapy, that biofeedback is really important for the brain. And so we can, we can intervene on this pathway between the brain and the ovaries with um, behavioral therapy. And so that's super important. So that also goes back to your next question about how do we care for ourselves, right? And diet and lifestyle. And so stress, again, stress management is a big part of that for a woman in those um, premenopausal stages. And so, you know, the typical girl who graduates from college with an accounting degree and goes works for a big firm or an attorney, she's going to get work to the bone. She really doesn't know professional boundaries and she's going to give as much as she has to climb that ladder. And so I see these women in their thirties trying to balance all of it. And then they head into their late thirties and they sort of crash. Yeah. And now they're getting ready to be perimenopausal. Cause we just said, that, well, we didn't say, but this is a decade of a woman's lifetime, right? Where she's going to be in this transition. So um, if you're listening and you're in your thirties, I hope you'll stay on and realize this call is just as much for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. That Terrific. Thank you so much for all of that. That's I thank you. Um, MHT versus HRT. Can you explain the difference in terms of language and if and why it matters? Um, 
what should we be saying? What should people be asking for when they walk into a doctor's office? Well, why don't you, why don't we start with you telling me what you think those start, like what you think those stand for? So, so this is so interesting because I always refer to, I, I, I say HRT all the time. And I recently heard a conversation where someone was correcting another and saying, I think what you mean is menopause, uh, menopause hormone, hormonal treatment. And, Correct. And, yes. and that is because um, you're not replacing a hormone, rather you are sort of mitigating or upregulating or whatever it yes. is, what is yeah. already there. No, I love that you said that. And I also, when I'm reading, I'm like, wait, they just skip from MHT to HT and you know, everybody's calling it something different online yeah. and you see why a woman, a consumer would be super confused. Um, I think, you know, hormone therapy can mean a lot of things, right? Like, am I just getting a testosterone pellet in my hiney so that I can feel a lot better and more energy or whatever that looks like? Or am I getting, um, peptides, right? Hormone therapy can be peptide infusions. We're seeing a lot of that coming onto the scene and growth hormone. I had a patient here the other day who's receiving growth hormone, um, for, something. And mm -hmm. so, you know, hormone therapy can mean a lot of things. Cause like we said, hormones can also mean a lot of things like cortisol and, um, you can have male like hormones, you can have traditional estrogen and progesterone. And so, but when we very good, Rachel, to say MHT, that just means menopausal hormone therapy. And I think that that is an important distinction because we are always risk versus benefits and deciding what is best for a woman. It's not a one size fits all. It's individualized care. And so menopausal hormone therapy is really looking at the, the best formula for a woman in that menopausal transition to support the needs in front of you. Right. And so again, like if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it probably is. So I tell patients, I'm happy to check your hormones, but I'm also happy to treat you for these things with menopausal hormonotherapy so that we know that we are supporting these months where the ovaries aren't really picking up the slack and producing the estrogen you need. And again, that's very different. Birth control pills could be considered hormonal therapy, right? Sure. Like absolutely. Contraception's broken down into hormonal and non-hormonal. So I'm, I appreciate you making that distinction. And I do think women, when they hear MH, MHT, it doesn't mean that this is like, you know, this, the stuff that's going to kill them because it's breed, it's built in a different lab and it's, you know, it's a, it's the scary type of hormones. I mean, women are scared of hormones. Every time I write a prescription, I'm like, okay. I mean, I yeah, still, because go. of being raised up in the era of the WHI study, the women's health initiative, and then the media getting a hold of it. Um, you know, I, I always give pause and say, which I do with most things that I do with a woman, like, am I helping her or could I possibly be hurting her? And so MHT is not something we should be scared of, but to your point is something where we are actually able to support a woman through the menopausal transition. And that looks very different than supporting a woman who's polycystic ovarian or who makes low estrogen in her thirties and those types of hormone therapy supplementation. Yeah. I, I thought when I heard this, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And I think important and helpful to both women, um, walking into a physician's office or speaking to a physician and that physician there, it, it is just, it's helpful. It's informative. It's empowering. Um, mm -hmm. you spoke earlier about birth control and you know, that women may come into your office with on birth, some sort of birth control pill. And 
you you didn't expand, but I don't know if it was if the assumption was they're on it for birth control, they're on it for symptoms, they're on it instead of MHT. So I I wonder if you could just kind of peel away the layer there about birth control versus HRT again or versus MHT. Okay, well, let's start with two things. Why do we use birth control? Is it always for contraception? No, not always. Sometimes it's to regulate bleeding, irregular bleeding for a woman. Um, And I think that's an important distinction. So you have to ask yourself, and I tell every one of my patients, you should always ask, why am I taking what I'm taking and do I still need it? My least favorite thing is to see somebody who's like, I don't know, I'm just always taking it. My doctor just told me to keep taking it. I'm like, oh no, girl, like, why am I taking something and do I still need it? And that's true with hormone, menopausal hormone therapy as well. Um, And so when you look at contraception, two things, why are we on it? What are we trying to regulate and how long do I need to be on it? And also think about how birth control works, right? So it is shutting down the brain from sending the signals to the ovaries, right? So those are going to be people who are going to probably not be making any endogenous estrogen on their own. And their brain has been told that they don't need to really do anything and shuts down the brain. And so, you know, when you're on birth control, we can put women in a menopausal state to begin with, because what did I, what do we talk about when you don't make estrogen, right? And then, right. And, and so, if you have a woman on a birth control pill, you put her in a menopausal state because you've told the brain, we don't need your help. And when you do that, what do you do? Well, you can lower her testosterone. She can have vaginal dryness. She can actually run a little hot in her core body temperature on a birth control pill and she can retain water. Hmm. Well, those are the very symptoms we just talked about in a perimenopausal woman. And I'm like, holy smokes, like I don't want to artificially create a train wreck by giving you this, right? And make you more miserable because you'll never come back to see me. So I think number one, you have to think about why am I taking it? Now, can perimenopausal women get pregnant? Yeah, it's one of those really that falls in the bucket, it ain't fair, right? Like it's not fair that I don't have periods and my vagina's dry and I don't really wanna have sex, but wait, I can still get pregnant. And I think that's important to realize too, like we have to be in the driver's seat of our health, right? And so, you know, women my age have a higher rate of having a genetically abnormal fetus and having a higher rate of miscarriage because of that. And now you have something, you know, you have a pregnancy loss that you didn't ask for, right? Or a pregnancy and unplanned pregnancy. So you have to be very careful about what is going on during that time. And so menopausal therapy may not always cover that from a contraception standpoint. So I want to know, is the woman at risk for being pregnant? Now it's very small. It's certainly less than 10%, almost less than five, whether or not you can become, whether or not you ovulate, but you have to think about, you have to ovulate first, the sperm has to get there, and then it has to be a viable fertilization. And then it has to implant. There's a lot of things that have to go right, right? Sure. For the, pregnancy to be successful. And it's not likely those things are going to happen, but I had a 46 year old woman in my practice who got pregnant. Um, and so, and it was quite a surprise to her and she had a very high risk pregnancy. So we want to be in the driver's seat of our own health. And so ask the questions. Okay. He gave me my, he, she gave me hormone therapy. Can I still get pregnant on this? And so I think that is something conversation that we need to be having with our patients as well. Um, and so if I see a woman on a birth control pill, I'm thinking, why is she still on this? Does she need it? Can she still get pregnant? There is some testing that I can do. I can have her come in on her second or third day of her period, draw certain hormone markers that will tell me the likelihood. And then I, we may feel more comfortable at putting her on hormone therapy. Now, I want to say that putting somebody on MHT may not help the erratic 
pattern of their bleeding. So oftentimes we do use a very, very low dose, a 10 microgram estrogen pill to sort of level out the bleeding profile for a woman. And we can still prevent, we can still prevent pregnancy and provide contraception. So it's two birds, one stone. And I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more too, as well, what that looks like for a woman. Um, but you know, there is a place for both in that transition, but you need to think about, can I get pregnant? And a lot of times the partners had a vasectomy, not always, um, maybe it's a same sex relationship and that's not an issue. Um, you know, but the, you do have to have discussed the elephant in the room with, Hey, you know, Oh yeah. This is a big one. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a really big deal. And, and I agree with you. And we don't talk about it enough. And, um, I've asked questions of physicians before I've, I share an anecdotal story about a friend who I assisted to an emergency room who was in her late forties, I think at the time and a nurse, um, you know, asked for a pregnancy test. And she was kind of like, well, you know, I haven't gotten period. And, and I said, well, no. And then this is terrible ending to the story, but she, the nurse was, came in and said, oh, I, you know, I have to tell you you're pregnant. And then he said, oh, I'm just kidding. And which was like a heart, the most horrific moment in medicine I've ever had. But I point is, the bigger point is to, to all that you're saying, it absolutely can happen. And it's, it's very, very important. Um, I just want to pause for a second because someone is asking a question. Sure. She says, uh, when it comes to birth control, what do you think of using the hormonal IUD and then combining that with bioidentical estradiol later on if needed? Okay. Who asked that question? Jolinda. Jolinda, bless you. I love talking about this. Okay. So um, I think IUDs are great. There may be some people who are going to roll their eyes back in their head and they'll get stuck, but I can, listen, I am a proud carrier of one right now. I'm on my second Mirena in my lifetime and <laughs> I don't want to see a period. I don't need to bleed to be a real woman because I know what's going on from a, mm. like a physiologic standpoint, but let's talk about IUDs. IUDs are meant for contraception, right? It's the most effective form of contraception on the market. Cause we took you out of the equation we took you out of the driver's seat. You know, you'll hear horror stories about it. I placed them. I think I've had one go through the uterine wall since 2003 and I put them in like they're hotcakes, right? And right. so I just love, 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 love IUDs. And so they're very, very safe. Um, but, you know, when you use an IUD, if you're using it just for contraception, just like a birth control pill, you can choose a non-hormonal one. I rarely like a perimenopausal woman to choose a non-hormonal IUD for the reason that, her lining is just under the influence of estrogen and progesterone and doesn't know what's coming or going, right? And so the bleeding's erratic and we can stabilize that with an IUD. An IUD, the levonorgestrel-containing IUDs, there's several in the United States. Um, there's the Mirena and um, the Liletta. Those are your long, those are the kind of the big sisters. And then you have Kylina and then you have Skyla. Kylina's a five-year and Skyla's a three-year. The, the least amount of time their life is, that's the less amount of hormones. I really direct you away from those. I think if we're going to like go to the gym and do a hard workout, no pain, no gain, let's put the big one, big sister in because she's going to look out for us for the longest time. And so Mirena now has an eight-year indication Lilette is the exact same as the Marina. They just were patent different. Um, the introducer was patent differently, but the actual device that we leave behind is just the same. Um, and so that daily secretion of levonorgestrel through the arms of the IUD thins out the lining of the uterus, the endometrium, which is what you shed off to have a cycle. And I always tell patients, you got to earn your lining. So if I put it in and your lining's super thick, 
you have to earn your lining. And once it gets thin, then you really won't see much of a bleeding or a period. So to answer the real question is, when you have a uterus, you can have estrogen, but you always have to have progesterone. Please, if you remember anything today, because there are still people out there on estrogen that have a uterus and no progesterone being opposed. And so what happens if you don't have progesterone? is you're just thickening that lining with estrogen. Estrogen makes it like a thick, shaggy carpet and the progesterone comes and thins it out. So think about a concert. You go to a concert, it's wild, it's crowded. It's very crowded and the crowd's thick and people start getting like a little too close. The glands are getting too close in the endometrium and people get a little atypical in a crowd, right? If they get too, uh -huh. if it gets too rowdy. And so that atypia can lead to trouble. And that's where we could get lots of trouble from the atypia. Well, that's what happens in your uterus. You can get a thick lining, hyperplasia, can get a little too big. The crowd can get a little too big and then you can start to get atypia. Um, hyperplasia with the tibia of the lining of your uterus has a 40% chance of having an underlying concurrent uterine cancer. So that's no wow. joke, no. right? So we want to oppose progesterone or estrogen. If you don't have a uterus, you can just be on estrogen. And that's a whole nother conversation too, because yeah. I have patients who come in who still are like, do not take my progesterone away from me because it makes me sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, and I spend <laughs> a lot of time talking to women, talking to practitioners daily. I'm like, okay, she's not going to give up her progesterone. I think it's the benefit is there. Who am I to say that she can go without sleep? I obviously think that that's worse on her lifespan. So let's give her the progesterone, even if she doesn't have uterus. But if you have estrogen, you absolutely need to be on progesterone. And so I love a good estrogen patch or, and so that's transdermal, it lowers your risk across the board for everything and all the scary things you might think of hormone therapy. Well, if I put a patch on you, I've lowered your risk for most everything I'm putting that patch on. And so an IUD is perfect. That lining just stays in a real nice steady state and we do not have to do anything to tinker with it. Now you don't get the benefits of oral progesterone, um, but I do think it's sort of the um, sweet spot for perimenopausal women. We've controlled their bleeding and we've opposed their estrogen and we may bounce around deciding, does she want a cream? Does she want a patch? Does she want something oral? What's the right dose? We're titrating up and down. And then I don't have to titrate progesterone because I just know it's sitting there. Now I want to say, having said that the IUD does not have an indication for perimenopausal women to counteract transdermal or oral estrogen. But as a smart practitioner, we know if it's in there, we know it's protecting the lining probably better than oral progesterone because absorption is sure. very unpredictable for a sure. woman, right? Depending on her gut health and her microbiome and all of those things. So um, I love IUDs for that reason. I think that you will see an indicate there are studies ongoing that will say, hey, can we, can we really recommend this? And can we get an indication that um, it can be used in perimenopausal women to counteract oral menopausal um, estrogen therapy. Terrific. Thank you so much. Um, someone asked a question in my uh, DMs about antidepressants and or MHT. So antidepressants and or the use of menopause hormonal treatment. Um, and she and I had a back and forth a bit because uh, I just wanted to sort of understand what, what she was what she was getting at. And so I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but she That's did, yeah. she did kind of indicate that, um, you know, she's a doctor has recommended that she try an antidepressant. She would prefer to take MHT. I don't know all of her circumstances. However, what she did, um, suggest is that she felt like 
everyone's always suggesting women get on antidepressants. And I don't know that that's really what I need and that's really what I wanna do. And can I go the way of MHT and will that help to mitigate some of the symptoms that are appearing to my physician to require an antidepressant? Okay, so that's a great question. I think when you look at options for managing menopausal treatments, non-hormonal versus hormonal, and in the non-hormonal category, we use antidepressants as well um, to treat symptomatic vasomotor symptoms. Vasomotor symptoms are night flushes, hot sweat, or hot flashes, hot flushes, um, night sweats. And so we can treat those with antidepressants. Not my favorite because I think when we're, by the time we drive it up to get symptomatic relief, we're getting some of the side effects of those drugs, which is like weight gain. Okay, well, mm -hmm. who wants to be gaining? We're trying right. to do the opposite direction. Right. Um, and so you can see some weight gain with certain antidepressant classes, majority of them, not all. And we have that discussion very openly and candidly with the patient. Um, and so, you know, antidepressants being in the non-hormonal um option, category option for treatment, but we don't always steer women that way. Now, I will tell you, treating a woman's mood is very important during the menopausal transition. And sometimes treating her hot flashes improves her mood. And I want you guys yeah. to understand the connection. These two are very connected, right? Like this connects everything. This is the driver. This is why this is where I start with a woman is who is she? How does she receive information? What is she stressing about? What does she have on her plate? Um, and so, you know, mood can really be affected by the number of hot flashes you're having during the day. How many times you wake up at night? I'm super grumpy when I don't sleep at night. I don't know about you, Rachel. And so <laughs> I'm like really irritable if I don't get good sleep. And if I'm awake all night, running hot and sweating and kicking off the covers and then getting up to go to the bathroom because my, I have low vaginal estrogen, um, then, you know, my mood's going to be terrible. So just treating the mood doesn't always treat the symptoms either. So you have to realize these two are very connected. There are some women who cannot be on hormone therapy. I, you know, I really pray and hope that when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I hope that I am not one of them. Right. Yeah. But yeah. If you have a really high risk of breast cancer and we've calculated that risk, then we have to have this, what we call shared decision-making, but I have BRCA carrier patients who have taken ovaries out in them prophylactically because they carry one of the two BRCA mutations, they still can take hormone therapy. Yeah. We have documented studies on that and their risk of breast cancer is not increased over their lifetime. And we've actually increased, we've lowered their morbidity and mortality right. rate in life. And so that is actually not a bad thing. So there are very few that really can't take hormones. Again, I hope I'm not one of them, mm -hmm. but if you have a hormone positive, receptor positive breast cancer, you certainly can't. Um, and so then we do push you towards or direct you, you don't push people, but we direct them towards the antidepressant class. And I, you know, hope that whoever sent this to you, that will shed some light, but if she thinks she should be asking, tell me why I'm not a candidate for oral menopausal hormone therapy or transdermal or whatever it is. So just say, Hey, I, can you tell me why I'm not a candidate? What are the risks versus benefits for me as an individual? And why would you recommend an antidepressant over that? It can be that some physicians are just like, they're like, I don't, I'm too scared to even open sure. that box. I don't know sure. what to prescribe you. Your OBGYN can't see you for a year. You're in front of me. You're miserable. I'll just put you on this. And it probably yeah. will help some because we'll treat your mood and might get a little bit of the hot flashes to go away. So I can see how it can be, um, just sort of something that you have in your toolbox that you're quick to grab if you aren't really up to date on recommendations for women. Terrific, thank you so much for that. That's super helpful. I'm gonna pause for another second because someone on the call has a question. So low vaginal estrogen could be the reason for getting up 
to empty the bladder? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the vagina loves estrogen. Okay. So um, I see one of my, maybe a few people that I know on this call, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, she loves talking about (laughs) every postmenopausal woman should be on vaginal estrogen. If you want to know more why or or something, doesn't even have to be estrogen. Uh, the vagina, listen, I mean, it is like tissue paper down there when and the going gets tough. And so your vagina loves estrogen, has the most estrogen receptors are below the belly button. And so, I mean, like when you take that away, estrogen's job is to help produce or it literally what it does is it binds the receptors and then increases the glycogen in the walls of the vaginal tissue. That glycogen is going to produce lactobacilli. The lactobacilli is going to drive down the pH of the vagina and keep it a very acidic, hospitable environment for all the things and keep out yeast and non-lactobacilli type bacteria. Well, your vagina is not far from your urethra, okay? And so all of that plays into it. Now, it may be that you are recurring vaginal infections and yeast and bacteria, and that is ascending and irritating the bladder. So, you know, women who have who are low estrogen state, who have vaginal, what we call um, genitourinary syndromes of menopause, GSM, which is a fancy way. We've got fancier letters now to say that you have <laughs> dry vagina because we don't call it atrophic anymore. Right. Uh, and we don't want to forget about our urethra. So that, te- that terminology used to be VBA, vulvovaginal atrophy. And we were like, well, we left out the urethra and the bladder mm. out of the whole game. So that is why we call it GSM, genitourinary syndromes of menopause, so that we can be all inclusive and we can include our urethra and our bladder and being aware that low estrogen impacts that as well. And so if the pH is dysregulated, then you will see that your um you've lost the ability to um maintain that normal flora and that can impact your bladder or you can not have any infection at all a lot of times women have a normal urine culture they think they have a bladder infection but in fact it is that those estrogen receptors in the bladder and on the urethra the opening to the bladder are just um they're they're firing abnormally because they don't have the estrogen they want so if you give back to that you give women hyaluronic acid capsules you give them a vaginal estrogen cream or tablet you give them an estrogen ring um you can give um prosterone d-h-e-a-s which also binds estrogen receptors, all of that will help um, to mitigate some of the symptoms that you feel in your bladder. And Dr. Smith, those four things that you just ticked off are options or are they to be used in combination? Can you just- That's a great, man, you like the, yes, you were so um, thoughtful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, again, individualized, and this is why you have to have somebody that you partner with and have some form of continuity of care because it's not a quick fix. And some people are, you know, if they're really, really sexually active, they don't want a nightly ointment. Like one of my favorite things to give them because I can get a big bang for my buck really quickly and get them really pretty rapid response and symptomatic relief, maybe something they have to use daily. And they're like, listen, I'm walking around with soggy pants all day. And I don't really want to be wearing this every day. Granted, I'm not going to the bathroom as much. My vagina doesn't itch as much. And I'm, I have much more pleasurable intercourse. However, I'm having to put this in every day. So, you know, frequency of usage, is it something daily? Is it something twice a week that we can use? Um, So I think that goes into the decision-making. If they're just really um, committed to being on something that's non-hormonal, they can use hyaluronic acid capsules. But remember what I said, the vagina loves estrogen. So if you put estrogen pretty quickly, it's like, thank you. 
and I am here to be your friend now. And so I sometimes just start with that to show a woman what life can be like and say, Hey, let's just do this. This is just an exercise. Let me show you what it could be like to not have your bladder dictate your life and your vagina dictate your life. And then they can start pulling back and deciding, you know, what they want to use and when they want to use it. Now, if I put them on something that's non-estrogen, then I might have them take just a little bit of topical estrogen and put it around the urethra area. And that can help them as well. And they don't have to use it uh, internally, intravaginally. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Smith. I have another question for you from Jolinda. When is the ideal time to start taking estrogen? For example, do you have to wait until your symptoms are severe on the menopause rating scale, or should you use the changes in your cycle length as your guide? You may do any and all of the above if you like. Um, Length of exposure of hormones, if you're in a low risk category as far as breast cancer, then the years of exposure of being exposed to hormone therapy isn't like you only get so many years, right? Now, there's a point in age where we like to say, okay, we need to start talking about weaning you down um, because, you know, the pendulum will start to swing the other way as far as a risk versus benefits. But it's not like you only get a certain number of, you know, estrogen days in your life of when you can take it. And so I think women need to know why they're taking it and what are they using it for? Um, I may not be able to pinpoint on a traditional laboratory panel where they are. Um, I have women that can have normal estrogen, but having hot flashes. And you're like, well, how is that possible? Well, because labs aren't real helpful and it's a clinical diagnosis. And number two, they are helpful when you've already like the estrogen has left the building. It's super helpful. Um, but it may be like, she has a little bit of, she kind of still falls in that normal range. I don't know where she started, but she falls in the normal range based on the labs values but she's feeling symptomatic and she's having hot flashes. And so it is okay to use it then. Um, if you use it for a regular bleeding, you know, you need to be careful because you can make the bleeding more unpredictable, which is what we talked about. And sometimes stabilizing the lining of the uterus can be done with a low dose birth control pill or an IUD. Um, and it may not involve you actually needing systemic hormones. So there is no, you know, Yes, slam dunk reason why you can start it or when you can start it or how long you can be on it um, in terms of being in that perimenopausal range and wanting to start it for irregular bleeding. Um, Dr. Smith, the follow-up to Jolinda's um, first part of the question is, I'm thinking of benefits such as bone health, heart health, et cetera, even if your symptoms are manageable. No, great question, right? So, um, so, So if you are a woman, and I think this is a nice segue into this, if you're a woman who goes through menopause early, our my job is to bridge that gap for you. Because if I don't, someone takes your ovaries out for maybe, you know, someone took care of you before you got to me and they took your ovaries out in your 30s for, you know, extensive endometriosis or something. Um, or maybe you had a personal history of breast cancer. If you, at a young age, but if your ovaries are removed surgically or stop functioning at a young age, our job is to bridge the gap, right? So we do know that if, if a woman goes through menopause, the average age being 51, I heard 52 at North American Menopausal Society this past month, they started throwing around 52, it kind of just was the new 51. Um, and so, you know, if you go through menopause before that, I really should be bridging you to that average age of menopause, especially if you're in your early 40s, for sure, if you're in your early 30s, because of bone health. 
cardiovascular risk disease, cognitive decline. Um, and so we know, and bone health. So we know if we withhold that from you, we have just shortened your lifespan. And that is something that um, is not ever anything I want to do to a woman is shorten her lifespan. I want to make her live longer, but increase the quality of life that she has on the year, on the days that she's walking the earth. And so we need to be bridging the gap and having you on hormone therapy up until the age that you would naturally go through menopause on your own with the average age being 51 to 52. Great. Thank you, Dr. Smith. I, I'm, I know we just, we have maybe 10 minutes left and a, something just came to mind. I'm thinking about, um, you know, just how wonderful and informative you are and, and how this conversation is a, is a unique and special one for the community ha to have, for, for me to have. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the idea also of medical gaslighting and how what you've created in your in your practice in, in Charleston House is is a place where women can have an experience that really speaks to the entirety of them. And many women will not get that, will not, we aren't in Dallas or we aren't somewhere where, where we have access to that or whatever that is. And for the, for the many people who walk into a doctor's office and have questions about how they're feeling, and I know these can vary. So putting aside what the questions can be, how, how do you make the most of your time, your 15 minutes, your, how do you sort of arm yourself for an effective, helpful, educative experience with your, with your physician? Well, I think it's, I think it starts with attending things like today, right? Because, you know, back to the woman in front of me drives the kind of practitioner that I am. Mm -hmm. I never want to be the last to know about something that my patient's asking about. And so I don't want them to go learn from, you know, at a, when they go have brunch on Sunday about what all their options are. And they're like, why hasn't my doctor told me? Right. right. So I don't want to be behind that. Um, but I think, you know, women taking the initiative, partnering with educational platforms like yourself is is a gift. We have the gift, although I'm, you know, I struggle to put myself out there on social media. Um, it is a gift for my patients. My patients tell me all the time, okay, don't get mad at me, but I saw this on TikTok and I'm like, not <laughs> mad at all. Enlighten me because I love mm -hmm. having people on there and I wish I had the guts to do it. And so um, I don't, you know, like you, like, this is what you're doing. You know, many of us, you know, I'm trained to be a physician, not to, I don't have the gifts that these people have that are getting out there. And so I think that there is so much good to be had with what's going on in the world. Also, it is a double-edged sword. And so we have to be careful um, with what we ascribe to and what we believe. But I think there are solid educational platforms out there. So I do not believe that women are without hope. We're talking about menopause. Remember my Instagram feed and your feed look very different than probably half the women on the call. And so there is hope for women and there's a ton of resources. And then you look your doctor in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but you don't know about this. Like it, you need to educate your physician and that is okay. Now, gaslighting. I've been medically gaslighted in my lifetime even. Um, and so I know what that feels like. I know how to be on the receiving end of it. I mean, I, I know that as a mother, like I had a, a baby who was failure to thrive. And I was told that, you know, the, you know, the, the great wall of China wasn't built in a day. And I'm like, well, but she's not eating. Mm. And so we've all been there. We've all been on the receiving end. And I think that women need to know that they are as educated as their practitioner and they have to approach it that way, right? Because it is not a dictatorship, that partnership. And here's what I want to say too. Okay, 
So there are a lot of platforms coming on the scene for telemedicine, right? And that is not a bad thing. It is an entry point into the healthcare system. It is access for a woman. That's what we are at Charleston House, right? We want to give you an entry point into the healthcare system. And we understand the need for that. If we ever saw it, it was during COVID and we understand the importance of it. Um, and so having said that, though, this does not replace a long-term relationship with a physician, but I am glad they're there. This starts the conversation. You start to unpack the, in, the, the things and you can streamline what you want to say to the physician in front of you by doing some of those telemed consults and taking the information back and saying, all right, this is what I've learned and I want you to guide me on this, right? So it's like you have to prepare for that visit. And so a lot of times what I do, there are a lot of things I don't manage in my practice, but I will sit down with a woman and say, all right, when you go to the endocrinologist or you go to the neurologist, these are the things on your list that we need to get answered. And I help them come up with that. So they feel like that 10 minutes is worth something at least to them for waiting, you know, three months to get in an hour in the waiting room. Um, but if you are being brushed off by a physician, it is largely because they are undereducated under and menopause does not appear to be a life or death situation. And so something I frequently say to women is quality of life issues should not be extra credit for women like enough of that, right? Mm -hmm. So we are notorious as a species for not speaking up for ourselves. So we've enabled this. We don't speak up for ourselves. We take care of everyone else first. And then we like to normalize the abnormal. So we kind of like, we have to own our part in that little bit too. And we have to break those cycles as well so that it becomes um, routine for women to want to talk to their practitioner about that. But quality of life issues seem to be extra credit and it's not life or death. And so it's not really a big ticket item for your physician. And it should be because these do impact your longevity and your long-term well-being. And I see a connection in that. And we didn't get to talk about that today, but the number of hot flashes is, is, is related to cardiovascular risk. Right. For so, I mean, like you can tell your physician that. I know you think that this is not a big deal, these hot flashes, but I actually know that it can mm. impact my cardiovascular risk disease, which I, that is still the number one, number one killer for women. So if you have to like strong arm your way into that and say, hey, my mom had dementia and you're not talking to me about hormones. And I think it's a big deal because I need to know if it's going to cause me to have early onset dementia or not taking it's going to have that or how long should I be on it? So you need to just talk to your mm. physician in terms of if they don't think it's a life or death situation, you need to make it aware to them that is as important because it can affect your long-term um, lifespan. That's terrific. Thank you so much. Um, we're getting to the end. You actually brought up a couple of things organically just now that I was I was going to sort of ask a more pointed question about. It is it is international global menopause awareness month and um i'm i it sounds like you are largely in support of um kind of the wave of attention that perimenopause and menopause is getting but i wondered if you just had any thoughts about it at the end of this month um as a physician looking at it well, I think what I find interesting is a lot of us that are really digging in and living in the trenches with women and understanding the rapidly, um, you know, availability of information about menopause are often the ones that are a little bit quieter and we're not the ones that are on those public platforms. And so my hope would be that educated physicians or practitioner, nurse practitioners, um, whoever it is, as long as they are really educated and understanding what messages you're sending to women, then I think it's a really good thing, right? And so, you know, there, there are some, 
higher beings that have spent two weeks out of this month at North American Menopausal Society and then at the International Menopausal Society. But those aren't the ones that are getting asked to be on these large public platforms. And I really think that they, they really stand to have a lot of impact on a woman's life. And so I do think all the things are good, but I think we need to realize that it is an industry as well. So I want patients to be careful. I do not poo-poo what they, when they bring in their supplements and things, I also say, Hey, maybe I need to try that too. Cause <laughs> It doesn't hurt. It might help the fact that my hair is falling out so fast. Right, I mean, right, I'm, on right. all, I'm on Nutrafol. And that, I mean, all the yeah. things right now. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it hurts my uh, pocket. <laughs> yeah, I know. It looks looks great. But we cannot prey on a consumer. We cannot prey mm -hmm. on a woman. And it is an industry too. So that is the ugly part of kind of things. Sure. And that's the thing of life, we, the world we live in. There's, an, there's a market for everything. I mean, listen, when I branded Charleston House, I was praying on the fact that women needed me because no one was taking care of them, yeah. right? And that's a true thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I do, I don't know if this is what you're asking, Rachel, but there are a lot of things. And just because there is a menopausal mist that's $16.99 sitting on a counter or sitting on a shelf and you turn around it in the back of it's actually water, like mm -hmm. think, okay, what else is out there that people are just like, hey, I'm behind this now and I'm behind this. And so everyone's sort of jumping on that menopausal bandwagon, mm -hmm. but I do think there are so many good resources for a woman. Um, and I think that all hope is not lost for us as we age while we're still looking for the right people to care for us. Um, and I think if you utilize, you know, Perry, um, Janine, I mean, there's so many MIDI health, yeah. there's so many good ones now coming out um, that have really good practitioners behind them sort of driving the recommendations. Um, but I also want to say this, you know, I am not, I am on your side. I am not on the hospital side. I'm not on the drug company. The drug company couldn't pay me enough to ever switch right. my sides, like mm -hmm. being on opposite side of the fence. And I'm certainly not on the insurance company side. Like I still mm -hmm. take insurance in my practice so that women can have surgery and still operate and have access to those kind of things. Cause if I don't, the hospital is going to take us to the bank, but I, you know, but I'm not on the insurance company side. Like they're like the insurance companies hate me. Cause I'm like, you need to cover this breast MRI. I'm going to show you data why. And so, you know, I'm always ringing their bell to say, no, 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 no. You got to keep up with the research and the data on it. But, you know, we're on your side. We're not trying to give you something because somebody else is pushing us to do it. There is no agenda except for to see you live longer and healthier. And the skepticism in the healthcare system is something that, you know, we all need to work um, tooth and nail to sort of mitigate, which I think you're doing. Oh, Dr. Smith, thank you so much. Um, is there anything I've missed that you really just want to communicate? I think you did just so eloquent. By the way, little sidebar here, you do have all the gifts, I have to say. You are a voice in this space. No, really, really, just I uh, I love speaking with you this hour, and, and you are incredibly informative and patient and kind and clearly in, you know, in, in the corner of, of all of us. Um, is there anything I've missed that you that you want would want to express uh, to to any of us on the call, anyone in general, sort of out there, things that sort of occur to you and you think, man, I wish women knew that. Well, I wish I wish that women knew that it is okay to um, ask for help and to have pause on why they're taking something and how long they should be taking it. 
I also want women to know that they have the right to have a really solid, good relationship with their physician. Um, even if you're utilizing a telemed platform, you want that continuity. Continuity means ongoing relationship. And you will, if, I mean, I have people message me all the time that live in different cities and I'm like, I will help you find somebody. And then I network and I ask this person in this city. And then we try to find them a healthcare home. So I really hope that we will, all of us, with our super smart teachings and learnings, we'll all reach across, you know, the the aisle to support women and help women and be connectors for women and our resources, Rachel, said so that we're, none of us are in competition. We're all doing it together. And it is for the greater good so that women can, I mean, you know what, we run the world. I mean, it's no joke. We're the ones yeah. making all the to-do lists. And yeah. so we yeah. run the world, we run our homes. Yeah. And so we really need to be connecting and um, making best use of every woman's resource. So I do think that there's hope for all of us. And I applaud everybody for being on here today. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No one's ever asked me to do something like this. Thank you so Oh gosh. Thank oh, this you. will be the first no, of this many, is so many, fun. many. I, I, I hope that you'll come back and, and join us again in the new year for another conversation, another deep dive sort of further into something. Um, where can people find you if they haven't yet? Um, Charleston House has its own social media account, Charleston House GYN. Um, website is charlestonhousegyn.com. Um, I'm also on there as Dallas Lady Doc. Now, listen, I just told you that I'm not as active on social media. I am going to pledge to this pe these people right here that I will just get over myself and do it. <laughs> I will be pushing you okay. forward, really. Yeah. I, please, you, you, uh, you know, Dr. Shiva Grafani, yeah? She's like a good friend and she's up my, in my ear every day, like you didn't make a post she today. Okay. She no, is no. my, she is, she was my gynecologist. I love her so I very that. much. I and I do. <laughs> and, no, I don't know and, if she's your gynecologist. I yes. just know that you know her. Because yes, yes, yes. And, I, and she, you're so reminiscent and, and you are voices that just need to be on repeat for all of us. Listen, so if you get us in a room together, there's no air because we literally <laughs> stuck all of it out of there. She and I spent a weekend in Naples and I was like, I might have actually run out of work. I didn't know it was possible. I, I would believe that. I would believe that. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there. Um, yes. Well, that this will this will all happen, and we will speak again in the new thank year. You very and much. thank you so very much. That our the chat is full of thanks, and really just this thank has you just guys. been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Be well. Very good to meet you, Doctor Smith. Nice Bye, everyone. Thank you for being here. Take care. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you for listening to our Perimenopause What the F podcast. The perimenopause journey can be lonely and it doesn't have to be that way. Make sure to download our free Peri app to connect with perimenopause warriors in the same stage of life. See you next time, Peri sisters.